Books with Nudie. We've been reading A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett and a jingle from The Jingle Book by Carolyn Wells in every episode. Today's jingle is going to be quite long, and we're also going to hear the first part of the 10th chapter. We're getting closer to the end. My sister is confused about jingles, and some of you might be as well, so here's a clarification. Jingles are rhymes that tell stories. I have some announcements to make. Um, first of all, I might take the summer off. Write me an email. I don't care if you have my normal email or my iMessages telling me if you want me to continue throughout the summer or if you think we should take a break. Summer technically starts, I guess, in the first week of July. So if you say no, then the first week of July, there will be no episodes. Second announcement, I still need help with big synonyms, guys. Synonyms of the word big. Someone please help. I'm running out. Third announcement, why is this episode late? Because I usually release it at 7 a.m. here in Spain. Well, there's sort of four reasons. Um, yesterday, I was looking for the microphone, but then I couldn't find it. And so when I finally did find it, I connected it wrong to my laptop and I started recording. I recorded everything until my mom came to get me for supper. And I realized I had recorded with my laptop um, microphone, so it sounded horrible. Last night after supper I tried again, but I forgot to put uh, to record, so I didn't record anything. So I'm trying again now. Why I didn't release it early in the morning? Because I had school, yay! It's the last week. And I tried again now after lunch. It's 3.30 p.m. right now. Um, but the cable, again, it wouldn't work. And so I called my dad and I said, you know, I need help. This isn't working. So he told me, get another cable. So I got another cable and here I am. We're recording. And that's the third announcement. So here's the last one. I have 11.625 listeners now. Which one of your bodies is not completed yet? Nah, just kidding. It's just the statistics. Although, if you're new here, you might want to go back and listen from the beginning, or you might get very lost. Okay, let's get started. Chapter 10, The Indian Gentleman, Part 1. Oh, wait, I, I lost my place. Where is it? Where is it? Oh, no. Oh, there it is. Okay. But it was a perilous thing for Ermengarde and Lottie to make pilgrimages to the attic. They could never be quite sure when Sarah would be there, and they could scarcely ever be certain that Miss Amelia would not make a tour of inspection through the bedrooms after the pupils were supposed to be asleep. So their visits were rare ones, and Sarah lived a strange and lonely life. It was a lonelier life when she was downstairs than when she was in her attic. She had no one to talk to, and when she was sent out on errands and walked through the streets, a forlorn little figure carrying a basket or a parcel, trying to hold her hat on when the wind was blowing, and feeling the water soak through her shoes when it was raining, she felt as if the crowds hurrying past her made her loneliness greater. When she had been the Princess Sarah, driving through the streets in her brougham, or walking, attended by Mariette, the sight of her bright, eager little face and picturesque coats and hats had often caused people to look after her. A happy, beautifully cared-for little girl naturally attracts attention. Shabby, poorly-dressed children are not rare enough and pretty enough to make people turn around to look at them and smile. 
No one looked at Sarah in these days, and no one seemed to see her as she hurried along the crowded pavements. She had begun to grow very fast, and, as she was dressed only in such clothes as the plainer remnants of her wardrobe would supply, she knew she looked very queer indeed. All her valuable garments had been disposed of, and such as had been left for her use she was expected to wear so long as she could put them on at all. Sometimes, when she passed a shop window with a mirror in it, she almost laughed outright on catching a glimpse of herself, and sometimes her face went red, and she bit her lip and turned away. In the evening, when she passed houses whose windows were lighted up, she used to look into the warm rooms and amuse herself by imagining things about the people she saw sitting before the fires or about the tables. It always interested her to catch glimpses of rooms before the shutters were closed. There were several families in the square in which Miss Minchin lived, with which she had become quite familiar in a way of her own. The one she liked best she called it the large family. She called it the large family not because the members of it were big, for, indeed, most of them were little. But because there were so many of them. There were eight children in the large family, and a stout rosy mother, and a stout rosy father, and a stout rosy grandmother, and any number of servants. The eight children were always either being taken out to walk, or to ride in perambulators by comfortable nurses, or they were going to drive with their mama, or they were flying to the door in the evening to meet their papa, and kiss him and dance around him, and drag off his overcoat, and look in the pockets for packages, or they were crowding about the nursery windows, and looking out, and pushing each other, and laughing. In fact, they were always doing something enjoyable, and suited to the tastes of a large family. Sarah was quite fond of them, and had given them names out of books, quite romantic names. She called them the Montmorencies, when she did not call them the large family. The fat, fair baby with the lace cap was Ethelberta Beauchamp Montmorency. The next baby was Violet Colmondely Montmorency. The little boy who could just stagger and who had such round legs was Sidney Cecil Vivian Montmorency. And then came Lillian Evangeline Maud Marion, Rosalind Gladys, Guy Clarence, Veronica Eustacia, and Claude Harold Hector. One evening, a very funny thing happened though perhaps in one sense it was not a funny thing at all. Several of the Montmorencies were evidently going to a children's party, and just as Sarah was about to pass the door, they were crossing the pavement to get into the carriage, which was waiting for them. Veronica Eustacia and Rosalind Gladys, in white lace frocks and lovely sashes, had just got in, and Guy Clarence, aged five, was following them. He was such a pretty fellow and had such rosy cheeks and blue eyes, and such a darling little round head covered with curls, that Sarah forgot her basket and shabby cloak altogether. In fact, forgot everything but that she wanted to look at him for a moment. So she paused and looked. It was Christmas time, and the large family had been hearing many stories about children who were poor and had no mamas and papas to fill their stockings and take them to the pantomime. Children who were, in fact, cold and thinly clad and hungry. In the stories, kind people, sometimes little boys and girls with tender hearts, invariably saw the poor children and gave them money or rich gifts or took them home to beautiful dinners. Guy Clarence had been affected to tears that very afternoon by the reading of such a story, and he had burned with a desire to find such a poor child and give her a certain sixpence he possessed, and thus provide for her for life. An entire sixpence, he was sure, would mean affluence forevermore. 
As he crossed the strip of red carpet laid across the pavement from the door to the carriage, he had this very sixpence in the pocket of his very short man-o'-war trousers. And just as Rosalind Gladys got into the vehicle and jumped on the seat in order to feel the cushions spring under her, he saw Sarah standing on the wet pavement in her shabby frock and hat, with her old basket on her arm, looking at him hungrily. He thought that her eyes looked hungry because she had perhaps had nothing to eat for a long time. He did not know that they looked so because she was hungry for the warm, merry life his home held and his rosy face spoke of, and that she had a hungry wish to snatch him in her arms and kiss him. He only knew that she had big eyes and a thin face and thin legs and a common basket and poor clothes. So he put his hand in his pocket and found his sixpence and walked up to her benignly. Here, poor little girl, he said. Here's a sixpence. I will give it to you. Sarah started and all at once realized that she looked exactly like poor children she had seen in her better days, waiting on the pavement to watch her as she got out of her brougham. And she had given them pennies many a time. Her face went red, and then it went pale, and for a second she felt as if she could not take the dear little sixpence. Oh, no, she said. Oh, no, thank you. I mustn't take it indeed. Her voice was so unlike an ordinary street child's voice, and her manner was so like the manner of a well-bred little person, that Veronica Eustacia, whose real name was Janet, and Rosalind Gladys, who was really called Nora, leaned forward to listen. But Guy Clarence was not to be thwarted in his benevolence. He thrust the sixpence into her hand. Yes, you must take it, poor little girl, he insisted stoutly. You can buy things to eat with it. It is a whole sixpence. There was something so honest and kind in his face, and he looked so likely to be heartbrokenly disappointed if she did not take it, that Sarah knew she must not refuse him. To be as proud as that would be a cruel thing. So she actually put her pride in her pocket, though it must be admitted that her cheeks burned. Thank you, she said. You are a kind, kind little darling thing. And as he scrambled joyfully into the carriage, she went away, trying to smile though she caught her breath quickly and her eyes were shining through a mist. She had known that she looked odd and shabby, but until now she had not known that she might be taken for a beggar. As the large family's carriage drove away, the children inside it were talking with interest and excitement. "'Oh, Donald!' this was Guy Clarence's name. Janet exclaimed alarmedly. "'Why did you offer that little girl your sixpence? I'm sure she is not a beggar.' "'She didn't speak like a beggar!' cried Dora, and her face didn't really look like a beggar's face. Besides, she didn't beg, said Janet. I was so afraid she might be angry with you. You know, it makes people angry to be taken for beggars when they are not beggars. She wasn't angry, said Donald, a trifle dismayed but still firm. She laughed a little and said I was a kind, kind little darling thing. And I was, stoutly. It was my whole sixpence. Janet and Nora exchanged glances. A beggar girl would never have said that, decided Janet. She would have said, thank you kindly, little gentleman, thank you, sir, and perhaps she would have bobbed a curtsy. Sarah knew nothing about the fact, but from that time the large family was as profoundly interested in her as she was in it. Faces used to appear at the nursery windows when she passed, and many discussions concerning her were held around the fire. She is a kind of servant at the seminary, Janet said. I don't believe she belongs to anybody. I believe she, she is an orphan. But she is not a beggar, however shabby she looks. And afterward she was called by all of them, the little girl who is not a beggar, 
which was of course rather a long name, and sounded very funny sometimes when the youngest ones said it in a hurry. Sarah managed to bore a hole in sixpence and hung it on an old bit of narrow ribbon round her neck. Her affection for the large family increased, as, indeed, her affection for everything she could love increased. She grew fonder and fonder of Becky, and she used to look forward to the two mornings a week when she went into the schoolroom to give the little ones their French lesson. Her small pupils loved her and strove with each other for the privilege of standing close to her and insinuating their small hands into hers. It fed her hungry heart to feel them nestling up to her. She made such friends with the sparrows that when she stood upon the table, put her head and shoulders out of the attic window and chirped, she heard almost immediately a flutter of wings and answering twitters, and a little flock of dingy town birds appeared and alighted on the slates to talk to her and make much of the crumbs she scattered. With Melchizedek she had become so intimate that he actually brought Mrs. Melchizedek with him sometimes, and now and then one or two of his children. She used to talk to him, and somehow he looked quite as if he understood. There had grown in her mind rather a strange feeling about Emily, who always sat and looked on at everything. It arose in one of her moments of great desolateness. She would have liked to believe or pretend to believe that Emily understood and sympathized with her. She did not like to own to herself that her only companion could feel and hear nothing. She used to put her in a chair sometimes and sit opposite to her on the old red footstool and stare and pretend about her until her own eyes would grow large with something which was almost like fear, particularly at night when everything was so still, when the only sound in the attic was the occasional sudden scurry and squeak of Melchizedek's family in the wall. Well, what do you think will happen? The jingle for today, which is what we're going to hear now, is called How the Cat Was Belled, which means how the cat got a bell on or how somebody put a bell on the cat. Guys, I also need more info, whether you want me to keep reading long jingles or if you want shorter ones. There's all kinds in the book. Okay, here we go. A fable told by La Fontaine two centuries or more ago describes some rat who should reign cat their direst foe, who killed so many rats and caused the deepest woe, this Catalina of cats. The poor rats were at their wits' end, their homes and families to defend, and as a last resort, they took the case to court. It seems they called a caucus wise of rats of every age and size, and then their dean with sapient mien, a very solemn of a rat, said it was best to bell the cat. The quaint old tale goes on to tell how this plan would have worked quite well, but somehow flaws appeared because no one would hang the bell. Though there the ancient fable ends, later report the tale extends. No longer is the truth withheld, developments appear, and so you have it here. For the first time, set down in rhyme, just how that cat was belled. The council, as twas getting late, was just about to separate, when suddenly a rat arose who said he could a plan propose, which would he thought succeed, and meet their urgent need. Now as this rat was very small and had no dignity at all, although his plan was well advised, we really need not be surprised that all the rats of riper years expressed the gravest of doubts and fears, till suddenly he said, said he, if you will leave it all to me, I will avow three days from now that you shall all be free. 
The solemn council then adjourned, each rat to home and fireside turned. But each shook his wise head, and to his neighbor said, It is dangerous, in truth, though it seems not to headstrong youth. Now young Sir Rat we next behold, with manner brave and visage bold, go marching down to London town, where wondrous things are sold. We see him stop at a large shop, and with the bland clerk's courteous aid, this was the purchase that he made. A bicycle of finest make, with modern gear and patent brake, pedometer, pneumatic tire, and spokes that looked like silver wire, a lantern bright to shine at night, enamel finish, nickel plate, and all improvements up to date. Said Slicer Rat, it suits me well, especially that sweet-toned bell. The shades of night were falling fast when Sir Rat turned home at last. The shades of night were falling fast when Sir Rat turned toward home at last. The neighbors watched him as he passed and said, What is that queer shade thing? Surely that can't be made to ring. Sir Rat went on nor stayed to hear the jests they made. And just outside the old cat's gate, he stopped and boldly braved his fate. For if that cat should smell a rat, how quickly he'd come out and catch him, and with what gusto he'd dispatch him. Sir Rat against the picket fence, leaned the machine, then hurried hence, and hid himself with glee, and waited breathlessly, to see what that cantankerous cat would say when in the twilight dim, he saw that brightly shining rim. We're going to leave it there because it's so long, do you mind? Oh fine, but it's quite long as it is. Are you sure? If you say so. Let me drink some water before we continue. Hold on. Sir Rat, though hidden quite and safely out of sight, had scarcely time to wink his eye when Mr. Cat came sauntering by. Ha-ha, said he, what's this I see? A bicycle, and just my size. Well, this indeed is a surprise. I'll confiscate this treasure great. How quickly I'll fly o'er the ground when I pursue my hunting round. He mounted it with eager haste. It suited well his sporting taste. He guided it at will and used the brake with skill. He grasped the handlebars and then, you see it was his custom when, he did a thing to do it well. Of course he used the clear-toned bell. Victory now, the deed is done. No longer at the set of sun, the rats fly shrieking to their nests. They saunter round with merry jests, and ne'er a thought of fear, knowing full well they'll hear the bell when Mr. Cat draws near. And young Sir Rat, who did the deed, whose cleverness relieved their need, his wondrous enterprise was lauded to the skies, and everywhere his name was hailed with shouts of fame. In difficulties oft we see, modern improvements frequently will prove a happy remedy. Phew! That's done! That was long, wasn't it? Have you ever provided a solution like that? I did one time, I think, where everyone was stressing out and in two clicks of a button I had fixed it. They were all so surprised. It was very funny for me. our episode today. I hope you enjoyed it. Come back on Thursday when we will hear the second part of the 10th chapter and a jingle. Have a great week.
Astronomical thanks to Epidemic Sound for the songs and sound you heard today, and to Project Gutenberg for the books we read. Thank you.